Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to the show this week. We have Adam Waniger. Adam, why don't you give us a little uh, elevator pitch uh, introduction for the listeners? I am a senior product owner at Wells Fargo. Prior to that, I was in product management at J.P. Morgan Chase. And then prior to that, I was in an engineering role as a technical lead at J.P. Morgan Chase for several years. Uh, I have a strong technical background, and a lot of what I've seen in product management has been really aided by that technical baseline that I've had. How did you find yourself getting into product? What was that journey like? For a time, I wore the product manager hat on my team. And we didn't really have that role filled at all. And I really got to talk to our customers and got to walk a mile in their shoes. And it was really eye-opening because I learned that our engineering team historically had solved problems like engineers do in a very mechanical, methodical way. It was not always the right user experience. And we didn't always solve the true underlying problem for our customers regardless of user experience. And to hear customers and really sit down with them and understand you solve problem A, I needed you to solve problem B or problem C. It was really, really eye-opening. Tell me, because Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, big companies, right? Give us some sense of size or usually have folks with the startup experience on the show. So we're talking like 30 to 40 people, like, but yeah, what are you, what are you dealing with? I, I don't actually know off the top of my head, the size of, of either company and numbers. I think the last time I checked, uh, JP Morgan had about 200,000 full-time employees. Wow. What do those product departments look like? In general, uh, at JP Morgan, at least sort of a product manager rolling up to a group product manager, rolling up to either another sort of director or a VP of product. And that's a, it's a pretty common structure. In my experience, I've always been aligned to one engineering team. So I've acted as the product point person for one mm -hmm. specific engineering team. And I, and that's, that's the structure I've always enjoyed and I've always seen successful. I've worked for other companies that I've seen structures where product manager is allocated to multiple teams. And I, I have yet to see that work well in my personal experience. Yeah. It's kind of hard to context switch. How do you organize then for one team? Is it specific projects? Is it features? Is it customer experiences? How? It's all of the above. It's anything, it's anything that delivers value for my customers and for my company. If you're asking how we align work, it's historically every company I've worked for aligns work based on their OKRs. It's corporate vision set from the top and then OKRs set from the middle or bottom up. A lot of these teams and a lot of the places that work structure based on user journeys. Essentially what that looks like in practice on implementation is just one problem or maybe a group of problems that are very related that we are solving for an internal customer. Coming from the bigger organizations, I'd love to understand a couple things. I'd love to hear the differences between the two larger organizations that you've experienced in the role so far. You have made a transition recently, so anything that like screams out is hugely different for you. They don't feel too different. I'm very used to working for large Fortune 500 companies and the culture's been the same, at least the ones that I have worked at. And I think every large company has the same struggle to implement product as every other large company. How would you describe the culture? It's a culture of accountability. Everyone's on board. Everyone's a team player. 
everyone's willing to jump in wherever they need to do it. Everyone wears multiple hats. Very akin to a startup, right? How your engineering team's technical choices impact your customers. How would you approach this? I've noticed throughout my career that a lot of individual product managers that I meet that don't have as technical of a background as I'm fortunate enough to have don't fully understand the technical choices that their teams make and then how those will actually affect their customers downstream. And if you look at this from a customer perspective and you think what a customer wants in an engineering process, like what does a customer really want in your team's delivery process? And if you ask a customer, they're not going to know what to tell you. They're going to have really no input because they're going to say, oh, what is that? And that's fine. But what a customer really wants from you in a product capacity is a steady stream of value that they want you to deliver and reliability. Everyone always wants reliability. And there's probably many more things, but like, let's just talk about those two big themes. So you're saying that there's nuances from the engineering teams and that maybe a disconnect there of, of understanding how their technical decisions impact the customers? I see it manifest most often in my career as branching strategies and then technical choices of architecture and then architectural patterns like feature flags. And then more common team cultural choices such as test-driven development. I think test-driven development is probably the most important thing to talk about across the board because I've been a part of some teams and some organizations that just don't write enough tests. And that is probably the fastest way to affect the reliability of your code and then by association impact your ability to deliver that steady stream of value. If you cannot write code and deploy code reliably, the whole house falls down, quite frankly. And you, you'll end up mired in technical debt, you'll end up mired in production issues, and then you'll see your delivery date slip, you'll see yourself not meeting OKRs, we'll see your team falling behind. And then more importantly, your customers don't get any of their problems solved. How do you go about in implementing that quality or that resilience within the products that you're bringing to market outside of just building tests? It's a cultural shift. Teams have to want to deliver that value. The teams have to want to write code with tests. They need to keep up on that test coverage. And more importantly, they need to follow best industry practices about how to actually write those tests and write proper unit level tests, acceptance level tests, integration tests, and then regression tests. With your experience, is it more of a skill gap that this team's having or is it more of a mindset? I think it's mostly mindset. I think there are good resources for engineering teams nowadays, good communities that they can go learn from and be a part of online mm. that talk about testing best practices and talk about how to get started. I think it's really, really critical in my experience, especially just a baseline of tests should be committed with every new feature you write. If you have a Jira and you work a Jira or a, you work a card, for example, and you're PRing new code into your repository, there should be some sort of checks and balances that says, I have written new code. Please review my new code. Also, here are the tests that come with my new code. And it doesn't have to be 100% code covered. But it should really hit the major features and functionality of whatever you just built. In that case, what they're learning how to do, it's a, a mindset of motivation issue to understand and know where to go and how to apply the right things. How do you influence that on the product side? It's interesting because it's not our roles as product managers to tell the engineering team what they can and cannot do from an engineering process. So that's a challenge. It's really just an honest conversation. I found it best to just sit down and say, this is how our customers are impacted if we don't do these things. And not only our customers, this is how you all are impacted if we don't do these things. You're impacted because you had X number of production incidents last month. Look at these amount of bugs in our backlog, for example. It's not a very hard sell at that point. Engineers want to build new and exciting functionality. They want to build the cool new things. And, and who doesn't, right? That's the exciting stuff 
that people want to build. No one wants to fix bugs all day. At that point, I think that's the South. The conversation, sitting down with them, illustrating the risks and the benefits of having quality code and not having to be too deep in the weeds. I guess from a product perspective, both your engineers and your customers are the stakeholders in this process. Everyone benefits. Why don't you go through an example from whatever level of detail you can on the last time that you had to go through this process with a team? What did that look like? In my experience, a model that's really worked is as a lead engineer, the way that we did our, and this gets a bit into branching strategy, I'll touch on it a bit, but if you are PRing code into a higher brand, it needs to be reviewed. So you must tag at least X number of senior engineers on there to review it. And that must come with tests. Tests must have this specific amount of coverage. Then in addition to that, which is probably a great just cultural baseline, what we also implemented were acceptance tests run every night at the CICD. That's absolutely critical because those tests are a great point at which you want to test your external integrations and not just your unit level things. If your application is integrating with downstream or upstream partners, that's where you want to test that continuously. That's kind of like the best practice that you want to adhere to. And how did that actually work in reality? Did you have to have a conversation with a dev that you found out that wasn't doing this that should be? How did you kind of make that more real? I've definitely lived through that. And it's a hard conversation to have, but it's a conversation everyone needs to have. And I think it's important that the group is all on the same page of, we want to follow this process. We want to do this. Like We want to write tests for our code. This is a good thing for us. We get value out of this. And our customers, therefore, get value out of this as well. That's the mindset you got to have and really drive with your teams. Yeah. How do you influence that mindset? Outside of just having the conversations, is this repeated use? Or is it repeated messaging communications? Do you put them in front of the users? Are they a part of the discovery process with you? What are the other techniques that you were able to do to make sure that that message and that standard for quality was adhered to? Having engineers talk to customers is always a great practice in my experience hundred percent of the time and always bringing them along as part of that product discovery process. Having them talk to customers and really understand the bugs that customers are reporting and understand their pain points. I think that is key a hundred percent. So if your engineers can truly understand and walk a mile, if you will, in your customer's shoes about how a bug or an outage is actually impacting them, they're going to be a lot less inclined to accidentally inflict that outage. You mentioned feature flagging. What's your take on that? I am a huge proponent of feature flags. It's something I've seen used and personally used to great success in my past roles. And so at, at a large corporation, there's obviously a lot of restrictions about when you can deploy to a production environment. Typically not so much about a lower environment like UAT or QA or dev, but almost always in the production environment. What I have found very helpful in my career is just feature flags will allow us to deploy and write code while breaking that dependency on external customers. And very often you'll have an external customer that requires a specific API payload to be sent and they'll be building their API alongside you. So you're building that together and you're marching towards the same date where you want to go live together. It's very common, I see it all the time. What happens if you get done first? If you get done first and they're not ready, that's a great use for feature flags. And feature flags might not be the proper term. I called them configuration flags in my career. But the ability to store code essentially in a setting, in a configuration file, in a database, wherever you want to put it, and then actually read that in at runtime and then change the running state of your app. That's been incredibly powerful. We've used it to great effect to do things such as changing ETL flows over time. If you're expecting to run a certain database query to get data out of a database, but you don't know the column names, the database is still being built. 
you know there will be a table, for example. You know there will be columns. You know what kind of data in general will be there, but that's fine. You can go live with your page first, and then you can update in your feature flag or your configuration flag and actually store that query there to be ran. Same with an API payload and the JSON structure there. In terms of your strategy, when you're shipping those components, is it pretty common that you're dependent on another team to do another piece of the feature to get this in front of customers? All the time. Incredibly common. Tell me a little bit more about that ownership over what you have impact to. It sounds like you have a piece of the actual thing that is shipping, but you can't hold yourself accountable to a customer outcome in that scenario. Is that kind of how to think about it? I would say yes and no. If your customer outcome depends on data flow through multiple systems and you're in the middle and your link in the chain breaks, the data flow is broken and the customer is negatively impacted. Okay, so like more of the reliability of the platform is what your team is focused on. Okay. Basically binary success or failure over the whole flow. How do you strategize as a platform product manager to make sure that the pipes are doing what they need to be doing for other teams to move and to leverage that intersection? There's so many ways to do it. I would say the most general way that I've seen successful is just communication between engineering teams, not just product folks, but actually to have my lead engineers in a room with other lead engineers of our upstream and downstream suppliers and to have them truly just how they want data to flow between our systems and how they want our systems to interact and to have them come up with that contract. And what I've typically seen used to success is doing a design ahead of time, you know, planning a design in one quarter and then implementing that design in the next quarter. But I've mm. also seen it all crammed into one quarter. Do you actually have a customer facing component involved alongside of the platform or are you working with another team to deliver a customer feature? We've typically been working with customers as well. A lot of our flows have always involved a small user experience component, some sort of a form, super simple. And then data sent from us down to a downstream system. There's normally a component there of data that comes from an upstream system that we're using to display in that form to send then with customer input to the downstream system. So the customer is all part of that as well. Are the projects more scoped in supporting the technical platform behind the feature than it is the customer output when you're kind of partnering with another team on that element? Or is this full end to end? That's interesting. So from an Ownership perspective, I'd say in that position, I've always owned the customer's success via my product specifically, mm -hmm. and I've been directly responsible for that, but I have always been indirectly responsible for customer success in the overall flow because I have been a critical step in that flow. It's always been a joint effort at that point. There's no one that's ever been historically above myself or my peers. We all own a unified journey together, I guess you could call it. How do you guys measure accountability on the teams? Is it by the features they ship or is it kind of by that joint outcome? And then how do you hold teams accountable if it is the joint outcome? It's always been joint outcome. It's a challenge. I can say that communication is key there and sure. observability to senior leadership is key. So it's, it's not necessarily beneficial or non-beneficial to have joint ownership, but it's very necessary for other parties to know that there is joint ownership if that's the situation you're in. And I've always found it beneficial to take ownership of pieces that even you may not be responsible for. For example, if I have an upstream data provider who is my peer and then a downstream data consumer that is my peer, placing blame is never the right answer. Everyone has to take ownership and personal accountability. And when you're in that environment and all your peers are taking ownership and personal accountability, that's really the best environment to be in. What would you like other PMs and aspiring PMs to know about your type of a role and your experience? There are a lot of things out there that your engineering team can do. It's their right as the engineering team to own the feasibility of their solutions, but it's very critical for product managers to know 
how those decisions are going to impact their customer. Absolutely critical. And sometimes you have the right and you have to take the responsibility to challenge your engineering teams. They're going to pick a process, an architectural pattern or a branching strategy, for example, that will negatively affect your customers or your ability to deliver value. In terms of like your engineers making decisions to impact that customer experience. How does that process go usually? Is it pretty collaborative? Are you working with them to define these things up front or is it more, here's what we need and go figure it out? What's that level of collaboration look like? The engineering teams have the right to control the feasibility of everything they build. And so that gives them the right to define their own delivery process a hundred percent. But I think product always has the right to challenge that if the delivery team comes back with a process that just won't work. For example, mm -hmm. a, a monolithic branching model or not writing tests in any way or potentially a monolithic application architecture of microservices. How does that conversation go usually? It's got to be an open and honest conversation and a good dialogue. It's got to be a nice back and forth because the engineering team wants to deliver value quickly and they want a process that's going to allow them to deliver code reliably, allow them to scale the product. And that's absolutely important. And it's typically just a back and forth. Every place I've worked has been an agile job. I've been in a boat where teams have tried to align the delivery process and their release cycles based on sprints. And that historically I've never seen successful. It kind of gets you locked in a very rigid mindset. Everything that is done in these two weeks will be released at this time and must be released in that time. And that, that certainly doesn't make any logical sense. You need the ability to write code, save it for later, and then deploy it later. The most common issue I've seen there is that close coupling. Tell me more about the planning process with some of these bigger companies. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you all take the roadmaps or the strategy inputs and then develop the OKRs and what to go build. How does that look like? Every company's done it a bit differently. Where I've seen it the most successful is corporate vision is set from the top, corporate strategy is set from the top, and OKRs are sort of defined in the middle or from the bottom up, ideally, is my personal preference there. Processes that I've been a part of typically involve going to senior leadership and saying, hey, based on the strategy for this year, what we want to accomplish as a company this year, here's how we think we can help deliver value towards those goals. We think we can build this feature that drives towards this specific goal. It'll have this outcome for our customers. You know, we'll get a 20% increase in X, we'll get a 10% increase sure. in Y or 20% reduction. Z. Do you ever get leadership giving you solutions to go and implement versus giving you the autonomy to be more forward there? Sometimes. And that really is not necessarily company specific, but in my experience, it's been right, organizational right. specific within companies. And that can be a challenging place to be. And typically when that has happened, it's not necessarily because anyone specifically wants that solution. It's because someone has decided that that solution is the best solution for a very specific problem. And oftentimes what I found the best to take at that point is to dive into that real problem. If I don't agree with the solution, if I agree with the solution, then we're in alignment. It's not much to do unless it has not been vetted with customers. And then of course, the next immediate step is to vet with the customers and do proper product discovery. Does your function also have the nuance of owner and manager? Is there a focus on the day-to-day -day working closely with a team versus more of the strategic angle? I have been called many things. I've been called a product manager. I've been called a product owner, and I have never noticed a difference. They have always just kind been taxonomy identifiers. Every time I've been called a product owner, my function has been more akin to true product manager for internal customers. I've always owned my own OKRs. I've always selected yeah. and helped cho chosen my own OKRs. I've always been responsible for communicating with my own engineering team. Always been responsible for communicating with my own designers or centrally allocated design team, if that's the model we're in. 
certainly always owned my own interactions with my own customers. You told us a little bit about that director, that kind of nuance of that product ladder that you've experienced in the companies that you've been a part of, not one in particular, but does it roll up into like a CPO or chief product officer or do you have something else? Sometimes, sometimes it does. I'm always fascinated about that structure and how process is set at different companies. I feel like you have such a unique point of view because it's this huge organization and coming from something that's very small, I'm not exposed to the type of organization that you have experience and curious about the nuances between those. It's definitely interesting. There's a lot. What would you say is like the hardest part of the job in this role? I would say it's always just been the scale of it all. Like you said, coming from a smaller company, there are simply less moving parts in a company of this size. In a Fortune 100 company, there are many, many, many moving parts. There are many internal teams. There are many internal products. There are many external products. Sometimes there are many external teams. Fitting all of those together and then mapping dependencies across organizations, across teams, across senior leaders. It is quite intense to do at scale. It sounds like it's very interconnected where any one change that your team's delivering has this implication to the broader product in itself. And it often does. And that's one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of feature flags is the ability to turn off a change essentially if you need to. Right. Uh, kill switch. Yeah. yeah. Or if you have the ability in your feature flag design to change configuration items and then change the running state of your UI or your application to essentially um, fix it on the fly, if you will. It's really powerful if you're limited to a model that doesn't allow you to deploy to production very often. Larger companies want to reduce risk and don't allow teams to deploy to production very often, or I shouldn't restrict it based on time. It's probably more yeah. just require a large amount of headway before deploying to production. And a, a lengthy approval process is typically required. That sounds pretty familiar with what I've heard and that a lot of red tape to get some change completed, which can be somewhat difficult, I think. But what you're saying necessary in order to maintain that customer experience, that resiliency of their performance. It is. Yeah. And it is a certain level of red tape that I've always found to be necessary. And it does indeed support that reliability of organizations and of companies as a whole, even though it may make our day-to-day -day job a little more challenging sometimes. At this point, I understand why it's there. I see the value. Outside of the process and the organizations that you've been a part of, see cybersecurity and a lot of interesting topics that you have covered and coming from test automation as a background as well. Anything market or industry oriented that you're excited about with your focus areas? I really watched the industry as a whole move from monolithic architecture, which is what I have a lot of experience with, with a background in Ruby on Rails, to microservices based architecture has been really exciting. I've seen a lot of products that I've worked on have been microservice based products. It really allows pieces of your product to function, even if part of it may be struggling or maybe experiencing an outage. I think that's really key for delivering value. It's really key back to reliability and resiliency. It still allows you to deliver a good chunk of functionality for customers, even if you can't deliver 100%, even if you just have degraded service. What kind of advice would you give for someone that is coming from a startup background or by that matter, like coming out of school and wanting to get into the product, one of these Fortune 500 companies, what kind of advice would you give to them or cautionary tale, one or the other? I'd say don't be afraid to take a role that's not a product management role and just get your foot in the door in the technology space. Because I've worked with a lot of talented people that come from a business analyst background or from a testing background that have gotten into product management and have been fantastic, fantastic partners my career. What excites you the most about product management, the future of it? Oh boy. I love this career wholeheartedly. I'll never look back 
solving a customer's problem and knowing that we've solved it the right way in a scalable way and seeing the joy on their face is the most satisfying reward I've experienced in my career, knowing that we got it right. That's great. Are there any other ways that you're continuing to grow your product and knowledge? How else are you learning and growing as a product manager? Well, I am a, a devout student of Marty Kagan. So everything he's produced, I follow quite religiously. In general, I like Melissa Perry's books as well. Inspired, empowered, and then escaping the build trap. I know she's writing another one yep. about product ops coming up soon. Melissa, we still want you on the show. Come visit us sometime. That's great. What kind of homework would you give to our listeners this week, the folks that are listening and wanting to apply some of this talk in, into their career? I would say read up on modern test-driven development practices and benefits that teams can get from that, as well as your customers. I think the internet's full of fantastic horror stories about what happens to products and code bases that have very, very low test coverage. And you know, and it, similarly, it's filled with wonderful success stories of how great code coverage, test coverage has safe teams. I think they're really powerful and they're really important, especially if you're new to the industry. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, it looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover. And who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.